My name is Manish Gupta. I'm one of the co-founders and the CEO of Indigene. The 90s saw the advent of companies like Infosys that leveraged Indian talent to service the software needs of the developed countries. In the next decade were born companies like Indigene, who leveraged Indian talent to service more niche needs of companies in developed countries. In this episode of the Founder Thesis podcast, your host Akshay Dutt is talking with Manish Gupta, the co-founder and CEO of Indigene, which is a full-stack service provider to global pharma companies. Indigene was started in an era when VC money was not flowing like it is today. and the way to build a business was by making it profitable in this episode manish talks about indigene's journey of sustainable scaling starting with helping pharma companies with content and training to eventually becoming the full stack behemoth that it is today with a few acquisitions along the way indigene is all set for an ipo which intends to raise 3200 crore rupees from public investors and this episode is a masterclass in sustainably scaling a global business stay tuned and follow the founder thesis podcast on any audio streaming app to learn more about the sustainable scaling and global expansion So I was born long long time back in 1972 in uh, Lucknow so my father was a scientist and he retired from a place called CDRI the Central Drug Research Institute he was the director of CDRI when he retired my dad went to the United States to do a postdoc for a very brief period of time he was in Palo Alto then moved to Boston he was in MIT doing his postdoc with actually professor Hargobind Khurana who was a, one of the Indian Nobel prize winners in genetics came back in 78 back to lucknow i went to the school in lucknow called lamartnia finished my class 12 in 1990 then joined bhu iit bhu did my mechanical engineering from there after that i decided to do a mba went to iim ahmedabad and did my mba over there i passed out in 98 joined a bank actually right after that uh, anz greenlays anz greenlays was a very hot pack that time they had really recently entered india they must have been like a day zero day one company yeah absolutely so they were way up i got a job over there and very quickly after eight and a half months uh, joined infi and infi was a very small firm right you must have been directly working with the co-founders at that time not really they were still a large firm in fact five days after i joined they had their adr listing they had just crossed 100 million dollars i think 3 4000 people so it was a well known successful firm by that time but started talking to some of my co-founders actually one of them who was senior of mine from imm dabad and he was a medical doctor dr rajesh nayar and, and where was he working So he was working with his stint was with Sara Bai Labs in Pharma in Ahmedabad. He also had opted out of placement first in campus. I, I think he again he was also not designed to work in corporate. So started talking to him, bunch of others. What was the the trigger that you said okay let's quit and start this? One was there is that going back to the impatience thing from my perspective there was a restlessness that whole thing of doing. thing step by step i just want to do much more than what i was doing in life over there and you realize that in a corporate setup after some point of time that becomes very difficult to do i would say that was the bigger trigger and then second is that again 99 98 to 2000 2001 the general environment had entrepreneurship in the air a little bit there is whole thing of starting up it was a i would say this was like us inspired uh, dot com Yeah, absolutely. So that a lot of that stuff was going on. See, when you are twenty five, twenty six, like most of the people 
the opportunity always is you think that you know what you're going to change the world our thing was that healthcare has many many inefficiencies and you could solve them by bringing medical healthcare and technology expertise together our thesis was that tech guys don't understand medical domain which is a very nuanced domain it's not as straightforward as many other things the risk are much higher if you go wrong and the medical guys of course don't understand the technology domain and if we could build a firm which has the dna of really interweaving these two capabilities together we could solve various problems in healthcare and uh, we were inspired by a bunch of things happening in the us that point of time there was a device called a palm pilot which was become very popular i don't know if you ever seen that and by the way very popular in the medical area doctors would uh, keep their notes on it and absolutely not only notes you can actually for example if you want to prescribe a drug you can pull out and see drug interaction our thought was you can get your lab report right there on the palm pilot you can make these connections so there are a bunch of things we thought we could do so there's a company called healthion which has got massive funding in the us Jim Clark who was a legend so they're bringing patient records insurance bunch of things together in doctor community was one of the facets like a combination of drug related content and patient records like patient record digitization yeah so the drug related content actually not only drug related content it was disease related content also disease and drug so you were relevant to the physician and just drug related content would not make you relevant to the physician physicians our whole thesis was that you got to become a one stop shop of information and knowledge for them and they learn from various things they learn from peers they learn from journal articles they learn from various cases which have been in different parts of the world and in the country so how do you facilitate information around some of these things and of course drug related information but that was a very small piece the drug and probably the easier part but how do you build disease related stuff was the bigger uh, theme and our thesis was that once you do that then you can bring in pharma companies in the into the fold they would want to partner with you uh, you get pharma companies to physicians and do various things uh, market trials bunch of things once you have, so our third step was getting labs and hospitals onto the chain that was our broad plan and we raised uh, some sort of seed capital in 2000 based on this plan Well, wow. was there really an ecosystem where you could raise, or like there were a couple of uh, VC firms which had got started in India, in, especially the international uh, ones. There was obviously ICIC Ventures, an Indian firm, and then you had a few Indian state firms which were there. But uh, there were two firms. One was called E Ventures. I don't know if you remember the name. E Ventures was a firm, and but the firm which invested in us was called Land Factory. And Factory was a British origin VC firm, and they set up an India shop. So we were the first investments in India, investment in India from Land Factory. Amazing. And how much did you raise? it was 350k or 400k which by the way was not even large amount even those days we raised that money started building and executing on this land so the f- first thing which we did is the tech platform and a content engine which meant not only from a tech perspective but how do you source content right in the first place which is uh, relevant to uh, physicians so we went out and built and this was first focus on india because in 400k you couldn't have done uh, much more than that so we did partnerships with a lot of the leading academic centers in india the likes of aims pgi some of the private hospitals we built relationships and alliances with a lot of the leading physicians in the country what we also did is there were multiple marki medical conferences especially the national level ones which happened we took content rights for all of them we signed up those deals so we tied up the content ecosystem 
we build an internal team to develop content. Uh, we build a technology team to make sure this content can be processed and updated very quickly to, uh, to be used to physicians while it's still topical. And then parallelly, we started working on all this lab, hospital kind of uh, stuff I had spoken about. How do you build, connect these people? So that's what we were executing on, but we were doing things in a systematic, I would say prudent way. That's when somewhere in 2000, by 2000 end or so, you could start seeing the market turning south or submit to uh, that's when the things when things start going south from a market sentiment perspective did you have enough money at the bank at this thing so by this point of time we were pretty much running out of cash we had few lakhs left and what was your monthly burn rate or like your payroll cost it wasn't much as you can imagine if you could stretch 400,000 for uh, two years so that that wasn't really uh, much we had started making some revenues from pharma by the way I still remember in 2001 March we closed 25 lakhs of revenue this was pretty much first year of real operations so uh, this would mean you had traffic like the only way to make revenues if you can monetize traffic so it, it was not necessarily traffic what we started doing is that we started seeing this writing on the wall and nobody was play, willing to pay for the website that was very small amount of money but this whole whole conference content we started selling to doctors directly first that was one stream and what do you mean by conference content are these recorded videos or is this like a trans no recorded video nobody would buy but what we would add is medical education on top of that discussions on with prominent physicians on a particular case or some content which you would have got from abroad one of the centers like hopkins cleveland what are those type of places we started using that mix of video and text absolutely and you were selling like in cds that was the time what sold was cds we started with online but realize online is not going to go anywhere it's going to be off. yeah and we had done our first CME online continuing medical education program online we had done something on TV by 2001 it was very clear to us that either we packed and go back home and look for jobs or do something completely different or the last option was that you truly monetize what you had and monetize was not in just generating revenues you had to generate profits and cash flows over here because depending on external funding was not going to be easy. And we decided that we will just do the last, that we will very quickly monetize whatever we have built. And it, we had seen early signs of pharma being a place where we could do this. The biggest thing was we started off with selling to doctors directly. That listen, you might have, there's no way you would have attended all the sessions. There are tons of other things which are happening in your area. Here is a product you can buy for that. And the good part is that given what we had built earlier on the website, doctors, we had started building credibility with doctors anyway. In 2000, itself, Lancet, which is one of the most reputed medical journals globally, had covered us as one of the most credible sources of information in this part of the world. So that was a good thing, which we obviously used to leverage a lot over here, given that there are these relationships with medical institutes. So doctors, there was some bit of credibility, I won't say massive, but it's still early days. But uh, yeah. using that, we could sell to doctors. Now, what really happened is doctors don't like to pay. Nobody in India likes to pay for content. Now, when pharma saw that, you know what, here is a stall in a conference and there's a queue of doctors who are paying advance for content they will get six weeks later or four weeks later. What the hell is going on? So that's, they saw that and what, then they came back, pharma started coming to us and saying, listen, instead of doing this selling to doctors, why don't you sell this to us over here? What we will do is use our reps to distribute this content. And all they wanted is some branding and all that stuff of theirs, which was a much more doable business model for us over here. So that's one thing which we started selling to pharma. The second thing is that given that we had this medical expertise, given that we had relationships, many times uh, uh, we started pitching to pharma that, you know what, if you're going to launch a product or if you're getting into an area, 
pharma companies were, were doing what is called market development. For your drug to sell well, you need to make sure that doctors understand the disease area itself. There's enough and more diagnosis happening. How do you educate physicians about this whole thing? So we would start developing content and programs to be able to do all this effectively. And on one hand, we were leveraging the conference thing. Other hand, we were doing de novo content to solve various problems, right? What is de novo? From scratch, not as we would develop. For example, if there was a, there's something which we had done is that there's a once a day antibiotic being launched in India. There were none that at a point of time. Demonstrate that with Indian population that, you know what, this has the same efficacy or better efficacy than what is existing in the market. So doing trials on patients, collecting data, then generating content from there. I remember a program we had done for educating doctors how to diagnose DVT, deep vein thrombosis in the first place. Over here, you realize that deep vein thrombosis was becoming prevalent in the country, but doctors don't know how to diagnose it well enough. Then if they want to diagnose it, then obviously they want to write a prescription on that. From a pharma perspective, it was important that, and that's what market development was. If you're a forward-looking pharma company, you would help the whole ecosystem understand this better. So we started doing that for many disease areas. You would do like workshops and, or maybe you had some sort of literature that you were mailing out. So a combination of all these, a combination of all these and multiple channels. You'll have a website, you will still do a, probably a CD, you'll do workshops. We will still have some of these computer-based things, the tech angle. And our differentiation was coming from there. There could have been people, small shops, who could uh, still do the workshops and all that. But we will always bring the tech angle to, from a, it was, I would say, more coolness from a differentiation perspective. It's not that pharma was really, or uh, doctors were buying the tech, but it differentiated any company doing uh, this thing. So using that, we continue to build a, a business uh, a model. In reality, some of the tech part was getting underplayed. What we had started off as a tech muscle was not being leveraged to the full extent, which was unfortunate for the next, I would say, three, four years. That's what happened. But to stay afloat and survive. Essentially, you were running it like a services business. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We were running it as a services business and a very pure play services business with a very small component of tech in this uh, place. So we, by the way, continue to grow on this. I still remember my, the first few years revenues. I remember after that, I blank out. For example, the 25 lakhs jumped to 2.2 crores. 2.2 crores jumped to 4.47. Then that jumped to 7 crores. By when was it 7 crores? 2004 or 5 or so. So you could do 2001, 2002 was 2.2. 3 was 4.4. 4. So 4 would have been 7. And we also had turned profitable, not great margins, but just profitable. But the challenge we always had is that we always stretched on cash flows. Pharma in India didn't pay on time. First of all, the payment terms would be bad. And this is intellectual property. First time they were buying at this level, this 60, 90 days will become 180 days. And if you're paying out of your salaries, out of these cash flows, that was a problem. So as founders, for example, all of us didn't take any cash out for almost two years, uh, which was not an easy thing to do given the backgrounds we came from. And it's not that we had long corporate stints that we had massive savings. Whatever was there had been burned initial days in the company itself. So that was a big stress. Uh, Tell me that name, Indigi, just a quick diversion here. What does it mean or why did you choose it? So it is a combination of a bunch of things. This is my co-founder, Rajesh, who came up with this name, Indi. India angle, if you wanted to have an India angle, have this biology thing, you're thinking of innovation always, which had the word indigenous. So playing with all these things, the name indigenous came in and uh, sounded like a good name. By 2003, four, if you were stepping back and saying, listen, we're having fun, we're working in the industry, growing while we have all these cash flow issues. 
we're not clearly doing well financially, but we didn't start the company. We, we, one of the biggest drivers for probably all of us, definitely me, was to build an organization which stands out. Just not one more vehicle to make some money over here. That was, no, that doesn't mean that we don't want to do well financially. To build a company which is well-known in the long run, I think that's the basics. It was also very evident if you want to be servicing the pharma in US was 50% of the world pharma market, followed by five large European markets, then Japan, all this stuff. So we said, we just have to be there. So we said, we've got to be in the US. And uh, this person who met us, he was fascinated because of the reasons I just mentioned. We were really fighting it out. This, uh, the pain sacrifices, all this stuff was very evident, very modest operation, huge amount of frugality. That's the only way to survive in this whole thing. And uh, we got this advice that uh, what you're trying to do, the healthcare space, it's tough space. It's going to take some time. And uh, first of all, you can't have a dead investor sitting on your cap table. Over here, you'll need some more cap. You'll need some more capital. You'll have to do all this stuff. Otherwise, it's going to be a challenge, which made a lot of sense. We started talking to, and by that 2004, I would say things were getting slightly better. We decided to raise, try to raise money at that point of time. But we were slightly disillusioned with institutional capital by what we had seen in that whole phase of euphoria. So it almost looked like that you play the markets, which was in contrast to what we were saying, we want to build an enduring organization. So when we started talking to people, that was one option, but we were worried about that. So while we, and we were talking to probably everybody who had money in the country, shopping by the point of fact, who could have invested. And we met this family office of one of the founders of Infosys, a person called NS Raghavan, was one of the founders of Infi. He was eldest in that whole founding group. So he had retired in 2000 and he had set up his own family office. He was investing in a few companies here or there through some common friends. We got introduced to them and uh, NSR liked the broader space. He liked us as founders and they decided to invest, right? What was the pitch? Like, because you were a services business at that time. Like, what did you pitch to NS Raghavan? So we said we could build a services business only, or we call it solutions that are using technology and but a global business. That was a broad pitch in a differentiated space. And I think what you are convinced is that if you think about it, the normal thing to do even in 98, 9, 2000 was to start an IT services firm if you wanted to become IT entrepreneur, right? I live in Kormangla and I keep joking that every alternate street had a IT services firm. They're pretty much the way where everybody wants to sell something online over the last five years are now a SaaS product. So whatever is the flavor of the day, then those days flavor of the day was IT services. But we decided not to do that. We thought we'll build a specialized firm, which was not true at one time. Actually, so there's a massive capital restructuring we did, a fairly complicated one where we got all the old investors out and we came and recapitalized the company with some bit of capital, which we used to then start exploring the US markets more aggressively. By 2005 or so, it was evident to us that while US is definitely an attractive market, very large market. It was also, we are not the only smart guys who had figured it out. It was a much more competitive market. And that's the time when pharma as a sector was extremely comfortable. I mean, I say extremely comfortable. Now, if you think about this is this is a space or this is an industry which by 2005, five seven had just had an amazing run for decades. It had... This was when Landbaxi was at its peak and Landbaxi used to do a lot of business in the US, I believe. Yeah, so I'm talking about global pharma. I'm talking about truly global pharma. The reality is that from a revenue percentage perspective, the generic was and still is a fraction, very small fraction of the overall industry. Today also it is less than 10% of the overall from a value perspective. That time probably would have been even smaller. So the global pharma industry was had a great run. If you think about it, they had solved many, many problems for humankind, our average life expectancy going up. I think life sciences played a big role in that, making that happen. Because of the product, paid, while you had taken a lot of risk initially, once you have sub successful products, you had entry barriers and hence you enjoyed a long run over there. 
drug pricing, at least in developed markets, was pretty attractive. And hence, the margins of life science companies were pretty high. If you compare a life science $50 billion company with a FMCG company of that size, the life science companies was double. The, at an origin level, it was double. And hence, the market cap was double. You're growing well because of various secular trends. And then all of a sudden, you show up saying that, you know what, you have this fragmented way of doing marketing or medical. We have a better way of doing it. You will save some money. Guys won't care. So we realized that to break into this market, it will be better that we have a US front end. Otherwise, it's going to build, take a lot of time. So we raised some capital and did an acquisition in the United States in 2005. So we acquired a company almost twice our size and used that as a front in the US. And this team, a company had raised capital from marquee global investors in the United States, had a fully running management team, which was very attractive to us. That they could run the business and we would add value in various ways we had identified and we can continue doing many other things. That was a broad thesis of this acquisition. Parallelly, we were expanding into Europe, Southeast Asia. So the whole focus was using our capabilities to become more global in nature. And what was this company doing which you acquired? So they were doing some of the things which we were doing over here, the whole medical education piece using content, but they also had a business in training sales reps on scientific and medical issues, not the soft skill training. You think about it, when if you're going to launch an oncology drug or a high-end cardiovascular drug or a diabetes drug, you got to get reps to have conversations about the disease and the drug with these super specialists. Uh, how do you train them to have those intelligent conversations? around science. And when you are talking about markets where product patent was there, it's finally science which sold. Your contrast in context the disease areas. So that whole disease material is what we would design. And this company had its own learning management system. It had many tech pro things which could be used, simulations of practices, bunch of things like that. The tech angle was very uh, strong. Interestingly, the CEO, one of the founders and CTO of this firm we acquired in 2005, is our global CTO right now, sitting out of LA. And so they had what in those days used to be called computer-based training, like what today we call edtech. Yeah, absolutely. In, in, this do, in this domain, as I said, ready-made learning management system, plus a bunch of other tools which could have been used for simulations, as you said, edtech kind of thing for this area. So we acquired them. Now, as things would have it, and that's when I joke that we had a tormented childhood which shaped us as a company. This company, we figured out that we missed some things in diligence. And it was a combination of inexperience and a bunch of other things. There were issues in with many. First of all, it was losing money in the first place, which we knew. But we thought we could turn that around over here. But on top of that, there were delivery issues with some big clients, which were not identified during the diligence process. It looked like they're going to lose revenues with those clients. And that happened. By the time we could even intervene. The invoices got disputed, basically. No, invoices getting distributed. Clients were not happy with the quality levels being delivered, the price point, bunch of things. So they just lost the business in the next year or... Which essentially meant the burn went up. They were even losing money, the burn. And these are his art thesis of that we'll be able to do things offshore stuff, build capabilities over here, bring some of our tech, which we had developed. And uh, so we had a three-year roadmap of how we'll leverage this company and continue to grow while bringing out costs. But that had to be compressed to months. You would shift the cost centers to India so that, you know, over, over time. But those capabilities didn't exist in India. That, that was the issue. So we had to build those capabilities in India in the first place because nobody was doing this out of India at that point of time. And what we also realized is the rigor required to service global pharma customers from a compliance perspective, all the stuff, FDA, was in a completely different league required compared to what was required over here. But we had offices in Bangalore plus Bombay and Delhi. 
during this that time. Bombay and Delhi, because that's where a lot of the pharma action was in India. Okay. So those were sales offices. Actually, not only sales offices, a lot of delivery also happened over there, close to the uh, customer. And when this US thing started happening, we realized that we this three-year timeline has to be crunched in two months, six, nine months or whatever it is. Otherwise, we'll end up burning a lot of cash. So we pretty much had to let go the entire management team in the United States, take over running this company on a day-to-day basis, build all our capabilities over here in quick time to be able to change the course. We also realized that this Bombay Delhi thing was an issue because we had to have certain quality standards over here. Whereas our Indian, while we decided that we will have a, the same quality standards across the board, even though that meant lower margins. But were there a bunch of practices in terms of how you develop content and all this stuff, which were just not going to sit well with global customers. And then having two different processes, different cultures, just didn't work. We shut down our Bombay Delhi offices, centralized delivery in uh, Bangalore, built a lot of global systems in terms of quality. Did you lose business in India by shutting down those offices? Honestly, I don't remember also because I didn't care at that point of time because the numbers were very different. And not only US, we started winning in the Europe, and but all these were global customers, very, very large companies who are continuously, even before they start working with you, there will be three-day audits of your processes, systems, and all that stuff. So we said we can't have our energies distributed and focused. So we service our Bangalore, India customers through Bangalore. I don't think that made such a big impact, by the way, over here. I think the bigger reason for us to continue in Bombay, Delhi, is that most of the talent when we started off was available in those markets for the Indian market. And rather than disrupting, it was easier to hire talent if you went that way. But then when the hard calls had to be made, we made those hard calls and invested more in training and development. And so we invested heavily in our quality processes, people processes as a firm very early on. As in 2004, of when we started to go to the US, we set up a separate business excellence team, right, as overhead, which was not easy when you were a seven crore revenue company and running on your cash flows. There, we set up our HR practices, right? all this stuff in a fairly robust vision to do training and development, hiring the best people, a bunch of things like that. And training and development was difficult because this domain did not exist in India. So you just couldn't hire experts over here. So we had to move, get people from the United States to train people over here, especially in things like medical writing, medical illustrations, a bunch of things like that. So it was a pretty, I would say, a rough period we went through because there was a cultural thing also, right? We learning ourselves, how to service this market. Then there was obviously issues between teams which you had to manage, with cash flow issues, burning cash, turning that around, letting off, letting people go in at the senior level in the United States because we had to take control of this thing. Yeah, so by 2009 or so, we were a nice little business. I forgot the exact revenue numbers, but I would reckon it will be in that nine-ish million dollar range broadly profitable generating cash having some good customers right marquee names in a more project by project business type of format and stable teams that's where we had reached after a lot of hard work and pain and that's when we stepped back and again asked the question where do we go from here in india you were doing content plus distribution like you would create the content and you would also distribute like through cds through letters through workshops, seminars, etc. For your global business, was it the same? Were you also, because in India, you would have probably built a database of doctors with their addresses so that you could mail it across to them and so on. No, so that distribution, while we had built a database and all this stuff, the reality was being done by reps in pharma. By 2002-03, our model had pretty much become all pharma. This doctor direct thing we had, I would say, pretty much backed out of at that time. Your deliverable to a pharma company would be just the content or Content which is produced, say, in the form of CDs and books and brochures. 
produced complete end to end ready to be distributed irrespective of the channel irrespective of it's a cd irrespective of whether it's online mm-hmm. medium plus me those were the things which being used that point of time in the us it was all online pretty much across the board we would give you an example of one of the marquee engagements we had done for one of the top 5 global pharma companies that they want to launch it wasn't to launch actually it was they wanted to do, differentiate one of their oncology products and use the way they want to do it is build what they called a virtual oncology center so think about online format if you as a physician go in there is a patient who walks in and that is being simulated in a 3d type of thing when people are talking about meta and all that today without the underlying tech and plumbing that's pretty much what is happening that point of time a patient walks in and then the doctor asks okay so what is your problem so the patient will present their symptoms here are the issues i'm facing doctor will ask a few more questions right and you can ask questions as a doctor if you're a doctor attending that you can ask questions the patient is going to answer that and the back end programming has done been done with various scenarios so we would have developed this chatbot yeah absolutely and but that's getting recorded and we would have built the back end database with well known oncologists literature survey bunch of things like that at the back based on that you do a provisional diagnosis based on the provisional diagnosis you as a physician get feedback about what you have done you then order test and then how you order test you get feedback on that because it's the cost of ordering test especially when you're talking about the united states that how accurate based on this for your test you get the test results based on that you do you finally do the final diagnosis and do prescriptions you get feedback on uh, that and the delivery was through streaming cloud based yeah it was streaming yeah absolutely absolutely Right, so we started on that piece with the pharma, and we were doing well on this whole area. We had built a delivery capability in India. Scaling was easy for us. Scaling up and down, costs were definitely more competitive, and we had a US front end which we had built. So customers were comfortable. Otherwise, customers were not comfortable offshoring some of these kind of things at that point of time. The US company became like the parent in a way, or it is a subsidiary. It is a subsidiary. It is still a subsidiary. The holding and parent company is still India. So yeah, two thousand nine, you were at nine ten million dollars, and you were again in that questioning phase of what next. Yeah. So when we were in that questioning phase, parallelly, what was going on is that the pharma industry was going through big churn. If you remember, going back, I told you that this was an industry which had a great run for decades. But when you have a great run for decades, one of the flawbacks is that you. get some excess fat in the system that was evident but for a long period of time you don't care about it who cares if you're doing well still uh, markets are rewarding you then it doesn't matter but by 2009 there are a few things which are happening and the few things were that it was evident that a lot of companies will lose patents on some of their key products so close to 200 250 billion dollar worth of products are going off patent and when they go off patent you, you lose 90 95% of that uh, revenue earlier that pipeline was filled by new products but that was not happening at that point of time at the pace which should have happened and the reason for that was many fold one is you just had the financial crisis right and in every government was stretched and in most of the developed markets our government is a major spender in healthcare the medicare program in the us is probably the largest spend area constitutes a fairly significant portion i don't remember the exact number of the overall healthcare spend now with that the questioning on if you're going to launch a new product which is going to be 10 15 times more expensive than existing generic was much more intense that was one thing the second thing is that between 2005 and 10 there were two three big blow ups which had happened from a compliance perspective in pharma one a painkiller for one of the big companies and another diabetes product for another company they were linked to heart disease and there were issues on what was communicated to physicians was not right the clinical data which was suppressed 
And these companies obviously were fined massively, but FDA also was under some bit of pressure. How could something like this happen? And these were products doing billions of dollars of revenue each. They had to be withdrawn and all that stuff. So FDA had become much more stringent on what they're approving, what they're not approving and what you could say. So the, the, there is a act called Sunshine Act, which had come into the United States because there was also a lot of public pressure on how pharma is influencing physicians, prescription behaviors, bunch of things by enticing them, rewarding them. The way today we talk about big tech in a negative connotation, I think there was that big pharma had become like a bad word. There were some of these things which were linked to almost, you think about it that you are taking doctors out for joints, big conferences happening, giving them gifts and those type of things. So there's an ad called Sunshine Act which came in that anything which you're doing, I forgot the exact, I think the exact number is $100. Anything more than $100 needs to be publicly disclosed. A bunch of things, those kind of things started coming in, which doctors were very, right, interacting because it was just not great for them. Pharma was very about making sure they have all the records, what's going on, and we don't do anything wrong. Because the fines could have been massive. Companies ended up paying tens and tens of billions of dollars of fines over a particular period of 10, 2010 to 15, 16 during this period. Due to non-compliance with disclosure norms. Yeah, absolutely. Various things on this side, violating FDA stuff, what you can say, what you cannot say. By this time, by this is also a time when China was becoming a very important pharma market and companies were investing in that. Today, it is the second largest pharma market in the world, right after the United States. It was way behind when we had started off. So because of population and because India also has population, isn't it reasonable? No, I think it's a combination of many things. They Not so much population was one of the factors, of course. But if you see Japan also is a large market. Before China, Japan was the second largest market. It was also because of drug pricing. They allowed drug pricing to be there for a couple. While they obviously, they had various innovative methods to make sure that they can manage distribution to people who can't afford drugs while letting pharma price drugs, new drugs and all that stuff at the right prices to make money, which prompted pharma companies to make significant investments in China. So it was an attractive market, but they were investing right heavily into that market. India has a more restrictive price control regime. That's why it's not such a big market. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing which was happening is that this is just the emergence of digital and pharma. iPads had got launched. Everybody was talking about what was at that point in time called smack, social, mobile, all that stuff was becoming buzzwords. But more importantly, I think the whole iPad was a big success in pharma iPads were given to reps and traditional detail aid, which to be a calendar-like structure, was replaced by this digital thing. So those conversations around digital, which had started. Now, it is in this backdrop, we as a company were asking the question, where do we go from here? And uh, we said, you know what, if you really look at companies which are serving the pharma industry, there are three big companies servicing the pharma industry. Three big categories of companies, not big companies. One was CROs, contract research organizations, which do clinical trials and a bunch of things. Now, most of the clinical trial companies had become end-to-end providers, but I'll come to that later. But so that was one thing. And that's the time when, by the way, India was very hot on clinical trials as a destination. Probably you would have heard of that. 2010 period, there was a big noise around how because of the large patient pool, India could be a great place for doing clinical trials, easy to find patients, which is a big issue in most of the trials. There are a bunch of companies, domestic Indian companies, CROs, which are funded. One of those areas where the trend plays up. So this was one of them. What are some of those of, of CROs, prominent Indian CROs? Cero Clean Farm, right? Uh, Vida Clinical Services. You do search, you'll find some of these names. All of them got funded, by the way, by VCs, PEs, and all that stuff. So that happened. And uh, one of the things we got is that list. So, anyway, there was one category. Come back to the, our evaluation later. The second category was ad agencies. Network agencies do a lot of business with pharma in developed markets, hundreds of millions of dollars. I've also seen billion dollar, one company doing billion dollars with 
one ad agency I prefer stuff all the communication which is reaching out to physicians and patients being developed so that is the second thing the third were what were called contract sales organizations cso essentially when you have a drug which is going to be launched then you need to have extra bandwidth to be able to communicate to physicians or when you have a bunch of products which you think you're not going to pay attention to then instead of you having your people you outsource it to a cso contract sales organization to manage that and that was a third category and by the way each were medical representatives as a service absolutely absolutely and each one of them had billion dollar revenue companies not valuation revenue companies in each categories so we when we stepped back and evaluated this whole space we said the cro thing while india is hot destination we don't understand in clinical trials india is not is going to be an could be a the number of percentage of population coming from india can increase a bit if it is 7 8 it can go to 12 15 but it's going to stop there fda is not going to approve a drug which has 50% indian patients it has to be a much more distributed thing and uh, second is from a differentiation perspective what do we bring to the table anybody can get access to these patients it's a very operational intensely uh, intense thing we are anyone of the regulatory arbitrage guys and we have no in- if you don't see how we could differentiate we have no interest in being the 101st clinical trial company in india even if that means couple of million dollars of revenue over the next few years going back to the whole theme of you want to build something which is a unique differentiated so we rejected that the second category was agencies that was very old boys club in us and europe while there were pressures some consolidation happening we realized it's coming out of bangalore you, all of a sudden you won't be credible and probably we were on even not agency types over here cso looked like an attractive option to us but we said we're not going to be a cso we will stick to our dna and instead of cso we will be a vso virtual sales organization our bet was that sales and marketing and a lot of the commercialization processes in pharma will change on the back of technology and we use broadly technology which as the word which was now digital that's a bet we took in that 2019 era what would be the difference between a cso and a vso So you you won't have reps on the ground. You will reach out to physicians using various digital channels, calls, emails, websites, WeChat, programmatic media buying, a lot of analytics at the back, profiling of physicians, various ways. Then reaching out to you with the right message, not one size fits all. A US doctor might be more risk averse, and hence to convert you, I might show more safety data versus some doctor X who's more worried about listening to his peers over here, which. kind of content will be more effective which content which channel there are multiple channels there is a strong data layer behind that and then obviously you have to develop content which can develop this it's a combination of content channels and data which is going to be more relevant now one of the channels could be a rep still but it's just one of the channels over here so that's what we said we're going to do and we built capabilities around that I started investing in tech in various capabilities to do this effectively we had some wins more on emerging markets initially if you're not credible in the united states especially and realize that it's a positioning issue what kind of deals did you with give me an example for example in apac there was a company which is going to launch a product in five markets in this region and they wanted somebody to augment this launch and the broad model was this in here are the this almost a pyramid of physicians top notch physicians are going to be the heavy prescribers medium prescribers and then probably pres- could be prescribers but low probability so we would want to spend most of our rep money and focus on the top one probably a little bit of two how can you augment us on the first more on the second and cover the third primarily from a reach perspective with the messaging on this drug and the broad disease area we did this for five countries for one of the top 10 or 20 pharma companies in this region so there and you use like social media performance marketing like these kind of 
Yeah, so all kinds of channels. We build a website, we had uh, inside sales reps calling out, we put ads, programmatic buying on websites in each of these regions separately. I did a lot of, we did physician profiling before that over here to even suggest what kind of content can be used, develop the content in this case also. So we did all that stuff. It's a combination of tech, content, which is one of the big differentiators of the firm that you have medical doctors, technology guys sitting together and making some of these effective, which by the way had been done earlier also when I spoke to about the virtual oncology center. You think about it, the same thing was required even there at that point of time. So that was the DNA of the firm. Just we did this in these markets, but we were not winning enough in the US and we realized it was a more of a positioning issue because we were perceived more as a medical company and not, but this required a bunch of more capabilities. Actually, while we had those capabilities, we were, US was a much more sophisticated and market which puts you in buckets and we had to break those buckets as a small firm, especially you get placed in buckets much more easily. So we did, by that time, we had grown out of our ghost of that acquisition which was a very torturous one and uh, friends some of our board members everybody is saying listen guys the world has moved on why don't you also forget that <laughs> let's uh yeah so we did an, uh, we did a small acquisition in canada a company well known in this space and not done well but we used that acquired that company in 2012 and made that again in the front for our offerings in this area in the United States. This company was doing this exact same like virtual sales. Part of that, but it was well known. It was a very strong brand in that thing in the United States. And we added a bunch of things on onto this company. They had one or two channels, some capabilities. What were they doing like when you acquired at that stage? You talk about in terms of revenues or? So they were doing a lot of things on basically websites, essentially helping companies leverage physicians visiting websites, right? At the point of time. And some of the well-known websites, WebMD, a bunch of other areas like uh, that MD consult. So that was one thing they were uh, significant. They also had a technology platform which they were selling to pharma to able to do all this stuff effectively. So some of the remote engagement pieces. So it's a combination of few of these things this company was uh, doing. We acquired them and uh, so we did that. We did a couple of other tech in acquisitions. By the way, and all this to our internal accruals during this period. We had our initial things that taught us that, you know what, we don't want to be dependent on Tuck-in acquisition? Tuck-in acquisition is like acquisition, we would call it, we will do for capabilities. For example, you know what, here's the problem i got to solve. It might be a capability, it might have been a tech platform, but it's almost you're saying build up a decision. I could build this, but it might take three, four years. I'm going to build this at X cost instead of 1.5x or 2x if I buy it right now. It's probably worth two years I save. Not an acquisition you do for size, scale, bunch of things, which was... Again, conventional wisdom, which has been given to us, right? At the point of time, why don't you raise more, much more capital, this thing, but we weren't we want convinced that's the right thing to do and for various reasons. Now, we did this stuff. Now, when what happened is when pharma was going through all these changes, they started, while we didn't go after the A's, they started saying, you know what, we got to do things more efficiently. Some of the things we are doing on the medical side, internally or in a very fragmented way, can be industrialized. Digital can be bought in, automation can be bought in. A lot of the stuff which we are doing with agencies is very fragmented, decentralized. 500 agencies working with us in some of our key markets doesn't make any sense. We got to centralize that to 3-5 and you know what agencies do a few things well. Let them do that. But there are, if they do 10 things, four or five of them are probably not done best by them. We could centralize them across brands, across countries and start moving towards how a digital-first organization should be working. When they started looking for partners, here we are doing all these things. The file view are much smaller, which was a worry for some of these companies, because if you are a 50, $70 billion company, you have this small firm, which looks interesting. But just because of the differentiation, we could get our foot into the door and win contract. And we grew on the back of that between 2010 and 16. 16, 17 had a pretty steady growth, some tech and acquisitions here or there. So in this period, you were essentially like the 
go-to-market partner for pharma companies. Like when they would want to take out a new drug, then you would do both content and outreach. It's not necessarily only a new drug. It's essentially what, so our theme today, and that's what we very quickly got down to. We said, listen, we help you commercialize your products using modern commercial and medical capabilities and organizations. And essentially modern means digital first, analytics driven. Commercialization means some of the things on sales and marketing could be for a new drug. It could be for a growth product, could be for a product declining. The strategies you use are different. The channels you use, the strategy you use might be different, but the underlying capabilities remain same over here. Similarly, on the medical side of things, uh, by this time we had that also. Pharma has these broad Actually, let me, take, if I take a step back, pharma does discovery in the labs, which is where the science happens. You file a patent. Once you've got something in animals going, you have an update. You file for two things. One is you file for a patent and you go to FDA for asking for approvals to do clinical trials. Clinical trials happen. That whole play thing is called clinical development, which has a lot of medical clinical trials happening. Yeah, which is what CIOs do. See, at that point of time, you also have divisions called regulatory teams. Is essentially doing a lot of the submissions and all that with FDA liaising with them or burnt of time. There is a team called Medical Affairs, which starts, which essentially sits between the commercial organizations and some of these clinical organizations, which is responsible for all the scientific interactions and the communication is going to happen with physicians. So it sits between those. So by the time your drug is in phase two, these teams come in forth and saying, how will you position it? What will be the medical messaging? They are the ones interacting with physicians, start going out the market, doing multiple things, publications, publishing your results in some of the reputed journals, which can then be used as evidence to take out the physicians, answering queries from physicians, medical queries, that whole process is called medical information management. Any material which you're putting out to physicians needs to go through a process called medical legal review. In pharma, you just can't put out anything. It has to be substantiated by claims. Got to be comfortable whether you're making the right statement or you are going, you cannot be superlative. FDA is going to come after you in a big way. So this team is the one which vets all this stuff. We started supporting them. Then there is a whole process around safety, drug safety, which is a massive process. And this is for, actually, I would say, while it is there for products being developed, the bigger one is for products in the market. If you have a issue, safety event, adverse event for your drug, and your physician or you or somebody else reports that, then there's a host of actions which trigger, which include reporting to the regulator and if there are enough and more signals that this is a common thing then you got to modify your label which is a regulatory thing so it's a fairly complex combination of medical and commercial process so we're supporting all these for pharma using a digital first approach by 2016-17 while we had grown one of the far issues was that we had realized that pharma is still doing digital in a very tactical way everybody had to do ipads were there and you'll have something on the ipad everybody are probably as part of their OKRs, KRAs, whatever you want to call them, they've got to do something digital. So there'll be a tick mark type of a thing, right? It was very tactical. We were growing on back of that. But 2016, 17, we started seeing that change in pharma. We were working with a lot of big pharma companies and we started seeing their internal conversations, internal PPTs, which were at a board level around priorities, around digital changing things. And our take is that was happening because by that point in time, the FANG companies were fairly successful, more than successful, I would say. And Every board was probably asking a question, not in our industry, probably every industry. What does it mean for my industry? What does it mean for my company as an opportunity and a threat? Right now, how do I deal with this? And the conversation had got elevated to that level. When we saw that, it was very evident to us that, listen, we just got to focus on this piece over here. In 2014, we had also got into healthcare providers and payers. 
as part of our thing on the back of Obamacare. If you remember 2014 or so, Obamacare, 2013 or whatever it is, was here. Obamacare had been launched and we saw an opportunity to get in that area. We had started a business, which in 2016-17, the new administration came in, was floundering because the US industry itself changed drastically. Some of our small customers on the healthcare payer side went burst because of the regulatory changes, nothing from a business model perspective. So on one hand, we were seeing pharma in areas which we had bettered long time back, becoming more strategic. On the other hand, we had a bunch of other things and we realized this is our time, but we'll have to get focused. So we shut down and merged a lot of things which we had got into at that point of time rehash them to become more relevant those capabilities for the pharma thing double down on our investments in digital and tech to make this digital first really work we did a few more acquisitions 2016 we did a few acquisitions 2019 we acquired a consulting firm in europe focused on digital consulting for life sciences as exclusively because we realized that when companies are working with a company like ours, or actually when they are working with anybody to that extent, and they are op- using a very new operating model, centralization, their internal processes changing, they're laying a roadmap, what capabilities to build internally, what to outsource, how, a bunch of things like that. And they needed handholding to some extent, we need realize we need a consulting layer to be having a seat at the table earlier. And the deal sizes are becoming larger. So we had to make a call whether we build or buy a consulting thing, and we are evaluating both. That's when we came across this firm in 2019, which we acquired. 2016, we had done a few acquisitions. By the way, we, and all these seven acquisitions between 2012 9, till 19 were all, as I said, internal accruals. Just plowing by the cash we were generating into the business through this whole period. 2016-17, we also had contemplated doing a P round. And it was to raise some bit of primary capital to do acquisitions more strategically because it was not easy to do acquisitions out of your balance sheet when you still had a small balance sheet. Plus, the fact is we realized that we had investors, we had no pressure, but it was just from a fiduciary perspective, a little bit of exit helps in this thing. So we had gone out to the market for... Who were on your cap table at that time in 2016? NSR? That, that's it. The reality is we, as founders also, we wanted to generate some bit of liquidity for us after 16, 17 years. Being, we had started drawing salaries from 2005, but there were always subpar, right? And we were running the company very tightly, as you can imagine, if you're doing acquisitions to cash flow out of your margins. That was the case. But 1617. And what was your ARR in 2016-17? Like what kind of? 16, I am thinking we had done 52 to be more precise. But somewhere in the process, while we had firm term sheets and all that stuff, uh, we realized when we were, same thing, what I told you in the market was happening. We was, when I say market, the customer side of the equation, we started observing these. And it was evident to us that we'll have to make changes internally, shutting down some of our units, rehashing them, investing in a more in a few areas, which was not business as usual. Some of this stuff will have to be done. And while we got term sheets, we realized it's not going to be fair to get a new investor whom you told a story and then you realize you got to do all this stuff. So it might slow us down. So we as founders had discussions internally, we realized that should we do this? And everybody was of the opinion we should not. After working so hard for a long time, for a couple of years now, blowing this up and creating more problems for ourselves and somebody else is not a good thing. Luckily, we had investors who supported the view. They said, doesn't make sense. They said, we are not in no hurry. We had a good run with you guys. And like the business, you guys, everyone, so we can stay on. This is no issue. So we pulled out of that whole process, by the way, in that period. We continue to then invest in the business, grow it, and just double down on our capabilities market presence then 2020 happened like everybody else you were scared the beginning what's going to happen world has come to an end and uh, tracked our business very closely during that point of time i remember first thing we did is that 
drew down cash from everywhere. We had limits and all this stuff, US, India, saying that they just sit on cash. But then we started seeing that our customers, after a couple of months, we realized that they were doing more because they didn't have an option. The biggest thing, when people used to ask me, what is the biggest bottleneck for you? So the thing was that it's digital adoption in life science companies. Now, we cannot... We can influence a little bit by doing thought leadership and all this stuff. But listen, at one and a half trillion dollar industry, you can't bend the curve for it. You've got to be prepared when the curve bends. We realize that the curve is bending, right? In 2020, uh, 20, and that's when. Yeah, companies were forced to adopt more digital. Do more. And we found ourselves in a unique spot of being probably the company, as a standalone company, with this kind of characteristics and experience of doing this for more than a decade with some of the largest companies on the planet over here and successfully. So we benefited from that and had a good jump between 2020 and 2022. And somewhere in 2021, actually 2020, we also had thought as part of our initial plan that we will bring in, do the PE process in 2020. That the agreement we had between us and our investors is that we will not even try before 2020. We, that time is required to do this thing. But 2020 or 2021 is when we'll start the process. 2020, late 2020, we started the process. And we got two new institutional capital partners in early 2021 onto our cap table. So Carlyle, which I'm sure you and your listeners will be aware of, came in as an investor. Another firm called Brighton Park Capital, which is a US firm based out of Connecticut, also came in. Brighton Park was a firm, B firm, started by a person called Mark Zaga, who understood India very well. He was the chief investment officer of General Atlantic for a long period of time and led a lot of the investments he had made in India for a lot of uh, time, right? So brought both of them as investors into the company in 2021. So that's brought <clears throat> where uh, we are. Today, we see the industry. You, you raised about 200 million like in, in that. Yeah, yeah. This must have been like a unicorn round, I'm guessing. It wasn't a unicorn round. It was just below a unicorn round at that point of time. Yeah. And what did you close last year? What's your ARR? So last year, revenues were $223 million. Wow. Amazing. Okay. Okay. I, I want to understand that evolution of business a little better. 2016, when you decided that you need to do a little bit of retooling in the organization, build more capabilities. So in 2016, you were a VSO or like you told me you had got into other areas. So the business, actually, even before 26, what had happened, we had started the concept of ESO, but really the traction we got was after some point of time and the scaling happened in a slightly different area over here, which is essentially the whole agency thing, which I spoke about, essentially what we call is centers of excellence for commercial and medical. As pharma companies started saying, listen, we got to industrialize. We have very fragmented processes on the commercial side and medical side. We got to industrialize them, bring digital and automation to them, which meant that the way we do things internally, the way we outsource got to change and we got to centralize many of these functions. So they started looking for partners like us to develop content, campaigns, data analytics, in many cases on the medical side, manage some of the regulatory safety and medical affairs process and support them at a scale. That's where we got a lot of our growth from. So the combination of the commercial and medical side is still our largest. Medical side would be like a flow automation, basically. It's not workflow automation. I'll give an example of a process. This is, was 2013 or 12. I forgot the exact thing. But a pharma company came to us and there is this whole process called labeling. There's a label in every drug you have. The label is a highly regulated document. And you think that label has claims the drug is making over here, which is, has to be approved by FDA and all this stuff. Now you think about it, there is a document called core data sheet, which you have all the core data of the pharma company. From there, the label is derived and there's a global label. Now, If you're a large pharma company, you might be selling in 80 markets across the world. 
And each of those markets will have their own regulations. You've got to be compliant at a global level with your stuff. You've got to be compliant in each of these 80 markets. And regulations in any of these markets could change. And you've got to be complying, making sure you are, comp- you are in line with those regulations. One. The second thing is, you might have a safety event, which necessitates you to change the label, global level. You might have new trial results which have come in because of which you're modifying the label after FDA approvals and all that stuff. That need to reflect in each of these things. In context of the regulations, this company, which was a top five pharma company, came to us after they had some inspections and audit findings and issues. And uh, they realized that they were 40-45% compliant, which is a big risk for a company like that. So they set up a global labeling hub with us to manage these labels in 80 countries. That's an example of the medical side of medical side of things. So is, it, is this productized? Like I, I can imagine label management being as a product in itself. It's a combination of, and that's broadly our strategy. There are capabilities, things are done in a certain way today and most of that are capabilities human capabilities that is paramount now what we have done over time when i said investments in tech is that we have been investing in ai based solutions which sit in conjunction with these capabilities the reality is none of them are think about it none of these are driverless cars today there are different levels of automation which have been introduced to reduce the human effort reduce errors increase compliance, but the capability needs to sit to this today. A combination of regulations and maturity of these algorithms haven't reached a stage where you could do this thing. But we believe it's obviously over years, both these evolve more and more data, more and more maturity of technology and regulatory frameworks evolving. It will get there, whether it's three years, five years or 10 years, that's anybody's guess right now. The we place ourselves right now, it's a managed service where tech is helping you to deliver better outcomes at lower costs. And that's what we do for all the things over here. And those are the investments we made. We able to deliver differentiated outcomes vis-a-vis any of the incumbents in this space. The interesting thing is that if you really think about it, one of the things I keep speaking about is that people, especially in India, know about the, the whole contract manufacturing, CDMO as it's called, space. There are very successful companies in this. If you see the spend, sales and marketing is the largest spend area in pharma. And by the way, we can share numbers with you. It's a pretty large spend area, more than 20% of revenues being spent on sales and marketing for these companies. The reason, first of all, and there were large companies in the United States and Europe in this space. The reason you didn't hear about it so much is there was a fragmented spend. Every country, every brand, as I said, doing their own things. Now, over the last few, actually, I would say decade, which is now accelerating, is companies are realizing that does not work. It's a combination of many things, more pressure on bottom lines, more risk of non-compliance, you doing something which is not in compliance norms. And the third thing is companies are also realizing that if you want to be truly digital, like the digital natives, you can't have this fragmented stuff. There could be something which are fragmented or autonomy, but core infrastructure level, you got to have centralized functions. Otherwise, you'll never know your customers better. You'll never deploy strategies. And that is driving more consolidation and centralization of things. And then that's where a company like us becomes more relevant and has a large area to play on and win larger deals, which has also driven a lot of this growth growth we have uh, seen. Got it, got it. You were giving me another example in addition to labeling on the medical side. I spoke about the whole area of medical legal review. Now, if you think about it, you develop material. Some of our engagements will be the following, that you, we would be engaged by the commercial team and the commercial teams will engage us for, let's say, come up 35 markets right across the world. That you know what, anything which is going out to physicians, while we'll have few agencies, which will be doing steps one, two, three, after step one, not two, three, they will hand over the stuff to you guys. You will take it all the way to 10 
and then it gets deployed in the market right there but before it gets deployed in the market this whole thing needs to go through a medical legal review process in each of these markets now the company would be doing that given our medical capabilities what we started saying is that listen this medical legal process is a very intense process checking is happening at multiple levels can from basic english to claims references all the stuff is through medical review and you have only so much teams which and you want them to do operational work so we could support that so we would have a separate contract and it's required from regulation perspective a firewall contract with the medical organizations to support that process so the material which we have developed goes to a pharma company throws get thrown across the world to the medical teams comes to a team over here in indigene which is firewalled from this other team gets back and then it goes and once that is approved the final signatory is the pharma company then it goes to the market that's another process i can go on and there are a bunch of things on the medical and the commercial side now what i described to you on the commercial side is a fully end to end process but within that there are nuances that one is content other is how you deploy campaigns data analytics companies are buying platforms software platforms and then you got to use and make customize those platforms run them to drive more roi since someone is uh, deploying salesforce that you would customize and make sure customize and then run salesforce on a day to day basis and that's where again domain layer is required so wherever there is a intersection of domain expertise and tech that's where we continue to expand as a company and our filter is not only tech but it has to be domain that's where we can truly stand out as a company and not necessarily from india perspective but there are if you think about there are many firms are size scale stand alone across the world in this domain and that's what we choose to when we think about getting into an adjacency or a new area what is the role of data and analytics give me some examples of how that solves problems a classic thing is this physician profiling itself understanding your physician well i spoke to you about that's a core thing now we still do the vso thing that's a small portion of our revenue but now we are gaining traction that first of all how do you first of figure out to even get your physician list identifying which are the physicians to go after one is a very simple thing on prescribing which is a easy one but then you also do digital profiling if a physician is a heavy prescriber but you know what he is digital savvy he or she is digital savvy then you could have a strategy where you have some bit of rep coverage but you can still have a extensive digital thing but if he is not digitally savvy then you might want to have more rep coverage that's a basic point so you're getting your physician list then what we call shortest path to prescription or influencing behavior to understand that they're having algorithms and data essentially to figure out which channels which content pieces right will get the most amount of traction for these physicians understanding patient journeys in the first place from real world data there is a plethora of data sources that emerged over the last decade given that electronic medical records now for the exact numbers but i believe there used to be 6 7% in 2014 in 2006 7 before obama the meaningful use act came in the united states now it is in that 80s or 90% over there which is throws in a lot of data and government is making that more usable there's claims data from insurance perspective there's genomic data so you can use all this stuff to really understand patient journeys much better and in that context figure out your messaging and bunch of other things on the marketing side the same thing is also being used on the clinical trial side much more effectively are you also doing b2c marketing like to the end consumers or is it just the marketing to physicians that you do so it's not marketing to end consumers and end consumer marketing is allowed only in a few countries us is one of them 
where if you still see US, most of the TV ads will be, but that's a very good kind of thing. So we don't do that. But what we do is what is called patient adherence, supporting on chronic therapies. How do you engage patients that don't drop out, educating them, reminding them, bunch of other things. More and more, if you see the pipeline of drugs and where the pharma focus is today, it's on very specialized products. Oncology is a big one because that's where a lot of the unmet medical needs are and rare diseases. These are complex therapies, very expensive therapies. So bringing patients on board, the interface with the insurance companies, whether the patient is authorized to have a drug or not, then keeping the patient on the therapy. Those are the kind of involved processes a company like ours will be more involved in. So this keeping a patient, like this patient adherence would be through like emails, messages and all. Is there a patient app for a patient suffering from, let's say? It's a combination of everything. There there are apps, there are patient counselors, nurse counselors, again, by the way, websites. So it's very similar to that pay a whole physician thing to that extent. You have multiple channels to reach out to patients. So which line of business contributes how much to your revenue? And which country contributes how much to the revenue? So from a country perspective, it's US, which is the largest. It's going to be, I forgot the exact number, but two thirds of our business. Now the e-count is from a rev- contribute from a contracting perspective. What that means is that we might have contracted in the US, but we might still be doing work for Europe or some other parts of the world. Okay, okay. Because their head office is in the US. So office, even by the way, head office is not US is such a large center of gravity for most of the pharma companies that they might be doing contracting. Europe funds also might be doing contracting over there. So US tends to be two-thirds or 70% of that piece followed by Europe, then China or Japan and India. So the way we look at our lines of business is we call it enterprise commercial, enterprise medical and then our VSO business is what is we call it omni-channel activation. Now, so if you take the enterprise commercial and omni-channel activation that's more on the commercial side. That will be the largest portion of our business followed by enterprise medical and then we have what we call other some sort of consulting, we have just forked into enterprise clinical, a digital clinical trials. That's almost a startup within Indigene. That will be a few percentage points. How is digital clinical trials different from the regular clinical trials? So you are, first of all, there are many things. One is they are using real world data, real world evidence to, to in the whole trial design process more, more, more effectively. The protocol designs in the first place are much more data driven in the first place. This design would include decisions like who should be my sample size, which countries should I test this on and so on. Which Actually, it will be much more nuanced than that. It will be what should be my endpoints, why should be my exclusion criteria, inclusion criteria. We see a typical trial. Endpoint means like the hospital or the clinic where the trial happens. No, so what type of patients? When you are coming up with a drug and you're doing trials, you're trying to get a label, as I had explained. That label has exclusion inclusions. You would have, at the very simplistic way, it would say not for pregnant women, not for children. Now that's much more nuanced than what I just explained. Based on the data you have generated initially, you are seeing where is the higher probability of success for this drug so that I generate positive data and get into the market over here. Using real-world data, real-world evidence, you can increase that probability of success. But that's another example of using data analytics in the first place. Then identifying the sites and identifying the investigators in a much more rigorous way. Using, you think about it, as I just mentioned, the real-world your the orphan diseases, oncology drugs are the most prominent ones in the whole pipeline. How do you get patients onto trials? You don't have large numbers of patients in this. If you're using a cholesterol drug or a hypertension drug, it's easy to recruit. Pretty much everyone has that. But some of these re- patient recruitment, it's a problem. So using that, then again, you would use like digital campaigns. And- digital channels can be used to, again, recruit patients in those areas. So there are a few areas like that where we are trying to get and drive more effectiveness in the whole clinical trial process. 
partner with traditional CROs to execute or you partner directly with these components, say a clinic, a hospital and a... Pretty much all our business is directly with pharma. We contract directly with pharma. They go and execute. When you're executing the clinical trial, do you execute it in-house? So we are not doing full and for the operational part of the clinical trials, we are still not doing. We are taking pieces which where which can be disintermediated, made better. So we unbundling, trying to unbundle that process and add efficiency in that. In the pieces where digital law data can play a significant role. Again, we are still staying true to that whole thing of where we believe we can truly add value and stay differentiated. Over time, obviously, those pieces increase. And this commercial and omnichannel to, together would be like more than half your top line? Or? Yeah, it's more than half. There will be 60% or so. It's slightly more than that, yeah. Do you see post-COVID that more pharma are like reducing reliance on in-person visits, going more for omnichannel, like what you are offering? Is there a trend? That is definitely happening. That is definitely happening. And it's a function of, it worked in during COVID. The Average loaded cost of a rep in the United States is north of 250k US dollars. Well, it's fairly expensive. Now, there are places where you need a rep. So I'm not saying rep is going to go away completely. It's going to be there. But the use of digital is going to be more and more prominent because of a few reasons. One, it's fairly expensive, whereas digital is much more efficient. It's much more targeted. You can do much more personalized things. The second thing is more and more doctors are now preferring to have pull rather than push in this world of today. That's just, they are just like you and me. I don't want to be called every now and then. I'll call you if I have something. And most of my information I can anyway get through various channels. Last but not least is pharma is also worried about compliance. A rep having a conversation with a the physician, there's only so much you can control it over here from a compliance perspective. Whereas digital, all your messaging is controlled. What you're saying, you have a, you have a complete audit trail of all that stuff and hence from a compliance perspective it's much less uh, risky is there such a thing as like influencers in this like doctor influencer who would make tiktok videos <laughs> those are what are called capers key opinion leaders right some physicians whom the world will or particular country will listen to so typically you target them they are the ones you would probably even get during your clinical trials in the first place if not clinical trials those are places where you'll during your initial marketing process and that's where medical affairs plays a role as i had mentioned you have convinced them through science about your drug. And if you got them converted, it becomes definitely it, that plays a role. Advice would you give to yourself when you were starting way back in 2000? Or, which is another way of asking, what advice would you give to a young founder? A few things. Bill Gates uses the same, but at least, at least have, has been attributed to us. We always overestimate what we can do over a two-year period and always underestimate what can be done over a 10-year period. That is so true. That's one piece of advice I would give. So you're saying that have a 10-year plan? When you're starting a business. For 10 year horizon at least. It takes that much of time to build something meaningful. The second thing is, think about the market. There are, in my mind, there are two things entrepreneurs have to do. First of all, identify opportunities where you can build businesses. But while identifying those opportunities, you've got to be really critical on thinking about how the market is going to be shaping up over here. And there is no way to be 100% sure over there. There will always be probability. But many times we as entrepreneurs have more wishful thinking about how things are going to change and the pace they're going to change than what reality is. Right? Be more real if you're building an enduring business around that piece. Your vision can still be achieved uh, over a period of time, but don't depend on just financial cycles uh, and to run uh, this whole thing. Be much more rigorous on that. So that's one part the entrepreneur does. The second part, which at least we will, I believe, has kept us in good stead. We said, you know what, we're going to be entrepreneurial in nature. 
and but on the other hand we also will always be prudent and think about institution building building teams building processes which can execute on that opportunity so you can move on to the next thing we always focus on that and many times these conflict looking being entrepreneurial thinking about institutions being prudent they conflict got to find the right balance to, to strike that many times going in one direction more could be much more could just be detrimental and you can blow up over here and that brings us to the end of this conversation i want to ask you for a favor now did you like listening to this show i'd love to hear your feedback about it do you have your own startup ideas i'd love to hear them do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show i'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests write to me at ad@thepodium.in at that's ad@thepodium.in at